Welcome to the Sports Finder Podcast. Let's get ready to rumble! Welcome to the business of NIL. My name is Ahmed Alhuli, and today I have a very special guest with me, Mr. Michael Cross, the assistant AD at Penn State University for Business Development. Michael, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? How's things? Things are great. Great to see you again. Always great to see you, Michael. Um, Michael, before we get into the main component of the show, let's are you able to please tell the audience a bit about yourself and your background? Sure, happy to do so, Mod. So uh, my background, I've been in college athletics for 25 years. Uh, I've worked in a lot of different roles, uh, whether being an assistant AD for compliance, uh, making my way through to be a deputy AD at Princeton University, and ultimately became the athletic director at Bradley University until I took my role here at Penn State. And uh, you know, right now I'm responsible for new business development, which means uh, I'm identifying ways to try and generate revenue creatively for our athletic department, as well as serving as a sport administrator for a half dozen of our teams, including our men's and women's hockey teams. Awesome. So obviously the, um, the elephant in the room is, is the world of NIL. I mean, it's, it's on everybody's tongue. It hasn't left the news since it's it's come to life um how are you guys going about nil and educating students about the world of nil well the approach that uh i think that we took and i think a lot of people took was to first of all see what the landscape was going to look like and what i mean by that is everybody is dealing with a different context as it relates to what they're permitted to do um, each state has different laws some states have no laws. Uh, the NCAA has given very little guidance about what can and cannot occur. And so institutions have been largely left to figure this out on their own and identify the areas that they want to put their time and effort into as it relates to staff and resources. And you know, those two areas really have revolved around rules compliance and education. And I think those two paths are where athletic departments are spending their time primarily. So for example, on the compliance side of the equation, you know, I mentioned different states have different laws. Um, in the compliance realm, people are trying to make sure that their athletes are acting in ways that are consistent with what their state laws are. In addition, each athletic department probably has its own policies to try and guide what student athletes can do. So for example, some athletic departments will have language that prohibits an athlete from uh, working with a brand that would compete against a brand that is uh, a sponsor of the athletic program, for example. Uh, there's typically categories of, of sponsorship or uh, promotion or involvement that are not permitted because they're viewed as being too far out of bounds. So for example, things related to gambling, 
things related to alcohol promotion, uh, some of those types of things would be examples of areas where athletic departments might say we're not going to permit you to do this type of uh, action. So that's what's happening on the compliance side of the equation. And then the education side of the equation, uh, in addition to educating about the rules, you've got a whole variety of areas that are important, such as, um, you know, trying to educate athletes about uh, taxes, educate about financial matters. Uh, a lot of athletes are dealing with contracts for the first time and ways that uh, and being presented with things that may present them problems in the short term or the long term. So um, much like athletic departments educate about a wide variety of things, whether it's uh, athlete health, academics, whatever it might be, this becomes another area that athletic departments are also involved in and trying to help guide their student athletes and help them make good decisions. Awesome. Um, did you say that uh, did you say that athletes could not go into a deal with a company whose opposition to let's say a company that sponsors the athletic department or is it is that correct or am I or did I understand wrong? Well, again, that's going to depend on the athletic department yeah. itself. So um, athletic departments and, and in some cases institutions in total have very specific, uh, and, and lucrative ties with particular entities, uh, whether it's a, a cell phone company, whether it's a, a pouring rights company, that type of thing. And institutions want to try and protect those relationships and, and keep them in, in good standing with their partners. So having highly identifiable individuals who are uh, promoting another entity uh, starts to cause challenges for departments or can't cause challenges for departments. And uh, they may be discouraging that. And again, every athletic department is going to have a different approach as to how they want to think about that. Absolutely. What would you say the biggest challenges uh, the world of NIL has, has brought upon athletic departments? Well, I think there's a few of them. You know, I don't know if I would want to say the biggest challenge. The, the ones that jump out to me are, are one, uh, a lack of unified standard about what can and cannot occur. You know, within college athletics, there's typically a very standard approach about what's permissible and not permissible. This is one of those situations where you really probably have hundreds of different standards and approaches to what can and cannot occur with student athletes uh, and their licensing and of their name, image, and likeness. Um, some of that could drift into, for example, use of marks from the institution. Some institutions will permit that to occur uh, where a student athlete can appear using the marks or logos of an institution and other institutions may not be comfortable with that. So, um, so the, the lack of common approach, I think, is one of the key standards and, and tricks out there. I think the second thing is understanding the level of investment that has to occur in order to have a meaningful and beneficial program for your athletes related to name, image, and likeness. So uh, whether that's investing in particular apps, whether that's investing in more staff to help athletes through these processes, whether that's partnering with uh, academic units on campus to be able to do some of the types of things that they might wanna do within the athletic department, or do they choose to say, for example, partner with the business school and use some of the resources related to entrepreneurship and those types of things that might exist. So that becomes the second aspect of, of I think, being the big challenge. Um, you know, and then the third thing is, I think, 
making sure that the activities that occur don't drift into spaces that cause uh, challenges related to recruiting. Uh, said differently that this doesn't become an inducement to have somebody come to an institution and say, hey, we're going to have a, a million dollar name, image, and likeness opportunity for you. And that's used as a proxy for uh, having recruiting people for other reasons to an institution. Uh, so those types of things, I think, are the areas where people probably have the biggest concerns uh, that jump to mind for me. Speaking of recruiting, how do you see name, image, and likeness impacting the world of recruiting and colleges in general? recruiting athletes? Well, it's going to vary from place to place. I think, um, you know, some of the, the larger deals that you see uh, that have happened nationally, and a few of those happened right out of the gate, um, uh, you know, on July 1st, when name, image, and likeness became legal, um, you know, some of those have had little or anything to do with the institution they were tied to. Some of those had very much to do with an established social media presence that was developed by the student, either prior to arriving in college or while they were in college. Their institution does have some benefit to that, but uh, the athletes who I think are most successful uh, have either worked hard to develop their own views and, and develop their own following or bring some other unique characteristics to the table, which could include their athletic skill and talent. And those are the types of people who I think you'll see these big, bigger national deals. From there, you know, across Division I in college athletics, there's 350 some institutions. I think the dynamics of each of those schools is probably different. I think every town is going to have uh, the local pizza parlor or the local restaurant or the local uh, hair salon or whatever it might be that wants to have an athlete say, hey, I use this product or shop at this establishment. And there'll be some, some things where athletes can get some free meals, some, some apparel, those types of things. And then there'll be other arrangements that are probably of a higher end nature that have more exposure, might have TV involved, video involved, that type of thing, uh, that are more organized, uh, that could be a, a regional type scale. Uh, but those are gonna vary from place to place. Some institutions will have very small um, very small footprints as it relates to where their institutions located. Other institutions might have massive alumni bases that allow them to stretch out and reach people around the country and provide benefits that way. So I think much like the recruiting process uh, that you see right now, this is another layer of that and each institution is going to do their best to put their uh, best foot forward and talk about the reasons why you can be successful as a student athlete uh, in promoting your own brand and your name, image and likeness. Do you see this as a potential playing field for boosters and their involvement in, in teams? Well, I think boosters present some options and some challenges. I think on the, on the options front and on the positive front, you know, there's, there's certainly a relationship between having boosters in the community who want access to student athletes and think athletes might help their business. So, if you have somebody who's a booster of an athletic program and they own a local business, they might have an affinity or an interest in having a student athlete or athletes from that athletic department or a particular team sponsor and support one of uh, their business or their local franchises or whatever it might be. I think another area that doesn't get talked about as much is I could see boosters having interest in receiving lessons from athletes in particular sports not going to be as common in areas like football and basketball. It's not likely a booster is going to want to, you know, 
um, you know, want to go into a, a situation where they're learning how to block and tackle or, you know, how to play basketball, they probably have that in their background already and they're just not interested in it if they do have interest. Uh, the more likely place would be in, in what I think are the individual sports, particularly a golf or a tennis, where you could have an athlete who you know, plays and competes at a high level, uh, has aspirations to perhaps become a teaching pro later and would start a business around those types of opportunities and a booster would benefit from learning those skills and techniques that make that athlete a very successful athlete at the collegiate level. So those are two areas that jump to mind for me right away. Um, and I think you'll see a fair amount of that. I don't think any of those cause any particular problems. Um, what you wanna make sure is that the work, uh, that the payment that's happening is happening for work that's actually performed. It's not just a handout. So I think if people do the right thing and are actually working for the, the payment they're getting for name, image and likeness, uh, it's probably pretty above board as long as it falls within some type of reasonable, reasonable bounds of, of what the going market rate would be. Very nice, makes a lot of sense. Um, let's move on to one, one of the hot topics, actually. Barstool's athletic uh, NIL program that they, that they launched on July 1st. We've seen a few institutions in recent times come out and say um, that their students are not allowed to work with Barstool because they have a gambling component, alcohol component, so on and so on. Um, of, of course, it differs from institution to institution, but what's your opinion on, on, the, on the overall thing, on the overall uh, conversation? Well, the Barstool arrangement, I think, is, is a fantastic example of the speed with which companies and entrepreneurs will think about uh, ways to leverage athletes' names and likeness for their own benefit. And simultaneously, the speed with which athletes can act on those opportunities, uh, provided it happens within the, in the guidelines and the boundaries of whatever their athletic department's policies are. So, you know, when the barstool piece happened, you know, Dave Portnoy comes out and says, hey, I'm going to start this right here. He's on a video and he's, he picks up an athlete like that. And all of a sudden it goes viral and, you know, barstool gets a lot of traction and, and following. And a lot of athletes get to say, hey, I'm a barstool name, image, and likeness athlete. Um, as people look further at the opportunity, uh, I think you're seeing a really clear intersection of a challenge that's going to exist in a number of different ways. One, the speed with which these can possibly happen. And then secondly, the prevalence of gambling, uh, because barstool does have gambling ties, uh, but they're also a media company and the, the weaving together of media and gambling uh, is going to become more and more common very, very quickly. And I think in the short term, the challenges that you see and the, the reluctance that people have related to Barstool uh, probably makes a lot of sense. I think what you're going to see longer term, though, is there are going to be lots of media entities that partner with gambling entities that provide gambling background and information for wagering purposes. And it's going to start to call into question whether prohibitions against Barstool look a whole lot different than prohibitions against some other media entity uh, that may also have gambling ties. So athletic departments are gonna be challenged to figure out which of those are appropriate and which are not. Uh, but there's no question that sports wagering is here to stay. And sports wagering is an incredible revenue driver. If you look at the handles that have come through in states in just the first few months of it being legal, 
Uh, and simultaneously, media, media companies are under a lot of pressure uh, to generate revenue and do it in ways that may not be as traditional as they used to be. So those two, those two groups, I think, are going to weave together closely. And the, the simplistic way of saying, hey, that entity has a gambling tie, you can't partner with it, uh, I don't think is going to be so simple as more and more of these types of arrangements become apparent. Yeah, I mean, ESPN's developing their, their own sports book. So, and they televise a lot of the um, football games. So what happens then? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I'll give you, you know, another example is, is you're starting to see a number of venues nationally that will have their own sports book in the venue. Yeah. Uh, so if there's a, uh, a sports book in a venue, does that venue become off limits for an NCAA championship event? Does that venue become off limits for a bowl game? Um, so the prevalence and you know approaching ubiquity of gambling opportunities really is going to challenge some of the long held beliefs about where you can partner, where you can't. You know, the NCAA for, for many, many years would not put an NCAA championship event in Las Vegas. That is changing. They are going to have events in Las Vegas. Um, and so you can see the erosion of this um, in part, I think, because of societal acceptance. And I think in part because of the, the desire and, and need to generate additional revenue that uh, athletic departments are under tremendous pressure regarding those things. And um, you know, much like many, many years ago, alcohol sales may not have been very popular in venues. Um, you know, I think West Virginia broke the ice on that in terms of selling beer at football games. And, and you've seen that come cascading down uh, in a lot of places across the country. It's not universal, uh, but those types of things and those types of, of standards can change over time, again, because of societal acceptance, because of revenue pressures and for other reasons. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure Barstool took over the media rights from CBS for a certain bowl last week. I just can't remember the name of the bowl, actually. So uh, they again, did. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a bowl in Arizona. I know that. I don't recall which one it is, but uh, absolutely. They partnered with, uh, with a bowl in Arizona. And, you know, again, interesting conundrum and interesting challenge when you're saying, hey, Athletes can't partner with this uh, with this entity, Barstool, but Barstool can go and partner with an entity that athletes are going to then go and play on the field uh, with that same partnership. So um, it's a it's a tangled web we weave here in the, in the NIL world, that's for sure. How do you see the next twenty four months playing out in the world of NIL? Well, uh, I I think. That's very hard to predict. Um, one thing I do think most administrators hope will happen is that there becomes a common standard as to what is permissible. Uh, I think that would be very, very helpful. Uh, congressional intervention may be necessary for that to occur, um, but that's, that's something I think most athletic administrators would be very excited about as a starting point. Uh, whether or not it happens remains to be seen. Um, you know, our, the ability of our, our uh, leaders in government to get on the same page on a lot of things is challenged and strained as, we, as we've all seen in a lot of different ways. So that uh, hopefully it happens, but I don't know that it will or not. You know, I think a lot of the, the sensational headlines that you see right now, you know, will start to fade. Uh, you know, this will become a, a standard approach in practice that doesn't generate as much buzz and doesn't generate as much uh, enthusiasm as it does currently because it's new and shiny. 
Uh, I think there'll be something else that'll capture our attention at some point in the not too distant future, but uh, and it'll become a way of, a standard way of doing business. Athletes will know this is available. Athletes will know what it's about. Um, and much like athletes who, you know, year after year, generation after generation get uh, uh, the things that you do to make your college experience a good one, these types of ideas will get handed down as well. I, I don't think there's going to be any doubt those will happen. And then the third thing I would say is I think there will be continued innovation around uh, tools that can help athletes monetize, tools that can help educate. Uh, you know, programs like a CLC or a game plan, uh, you know, some of those types of things could be opportunities that are out there. Um, you know, they're going to have educational opportunities because it'd be compliance opportunities. So uh, entrepreneurs on the business side who are doing the, providing the picks and shovels as it relates to the gold rush uh, are going to also do well and find ways to um, help athletes, help athletic departments and simultaneously uh, you know, create some good business opportunities as well. Thank you for listening to the Sports Finder podcast. We'll catch you on our next episode. Y'all ready for this?